Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is presented by StudySync. Today, I am thrilled to have Dr. Katie Novak on the show. She is an internationally renowned education consultant, a practicing leader in education, a graduate instructor at the University of Pennsylvania in the Graduate School of Education, and the author of eight books on inclusive practices. I was fortunate enough to just finish a book project with Katie talking about UDL, Universal Design for Learning, and Blended Learning. So excited to have an opportunity opportunity to work with and learn from this incredible woman in education. So glad to have her here for this conversation. Welcome, Katie. First, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your journey in education. What led you to have such a passion or to become such a passionate advocate for universal design for learning? So as a teacher, I started off as an English teacher, and as a teacher, I was absolutely hell-bent on making sure that all of my students could become great readers and writers by providing them with lots of different opportunities to learn. And I didn't really have a framework that matched what I was doing, but I was just really driven by the fact that all students could become, you know, readers and writers and creators and thinkers. And as a seventh grade teacher, I worked in a district that was a part of a tale of implementation study done by CAST. And they're like the UDL gurus, the Center for Applied Special Technology. Mm -hmm. And they were doing a study that was funded by the Gates Foundation to see what does UDL implementation look like at four very different districts across the country. And I was just a, you know, happened to be a seventh grade teacher in one of the districts who received that funding. And so the assistant superintendent reached out to me and said, you know, I've heard a lot of what you're doing in classrooms, you know, very focused on high expectations. And I think that you would be great to be a part of this study. And I was like, hard, no, no. (laughs) That's a hard pass. I don't need anything else on my plate. Oh my gosh. How many of us have been there? Yes, that's exactly what I did. I'm like, oh my, what else do you want me to do? I'm, you know, I'm piloting and looking at student work protocols and I'm running the school newspaper and I'm coaching cross country and I'm, you know, doing the co-teaching pilot, like as someone else. And as luck would have it, I always say this because I think that so many things that happen in our lives are just we follow a path that is kind of like makes its way in front of us. Mm -hmm. And I said no multiple times. I'm like, I'm not interested in doing this, especially if there's training over the summer. And then I got pregnant with my first, who is almost 12. And I was going to be taking a really long maternity leave. And it turns out in like the couple of weeks where I rejected this opportunity for learning about UDL, they decided that they would offer a stipend in the summer. And so, so <laughs> sad that the only reason I did it was for the stipend. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's a lot of diapers. So I'll do it. Yeah. So that is how I learned about UDL. And When I went to the training, it just absolutely aligned to a lot of what I believed about teaching and learning. But there was this added layer of the training of which I was a guinea pig in this giant science machine of trying to figure out how UDL was implemented. So there were lots of different interviews, you know, audio and video, and people were always checking in, how did this go for you? Like, what is your best resource? And I, at one point, they asked me if you could essentially have this training again, what would be your recommendation? And I was just a kid. I was in my late 20s and I really (laughs) obnoxiously said, well, you might want to universally design it. (laughs) And they're like, I'm sorry, what was that? And I said, no, no, I'm not trying to be fresh, which a lot of the things that I don't mean to be fresh end up being fresh. But I said, I loved it. I loved learning about it. But it felt like a lot of the time we were doing the same things. Like there was this really kind of engaging activity that we were all a part of, but there wasn't a lot of flexibility to do something else. Mm -hmm. And I'm having a hard time connecting what I learned about UDL to like the way that I pictured it and what I experienced. Mm -hmm. So they're like, oh, that's interesting. So they go back (laughs) and they share this soundbite with the father of UDL, who is such an incredible mentor to me, Dr. David Rose. And he heard it and thought it was pretty hilarious. And so he reached out to me and was like, well, how would you do it? I'm like, oh, <laughs> let me tell you how I would how do it. How much time do you have, sir? <laughs> <laughs> 
so I was like, oh, I would do this and this and this. And he was like, that is really really interesting and out of control in a lot of ways. And so I love it. Why don't you come to Harvard University and I'm doing this international symposium on UDL. I want you to present that. So my very first (laughs) consulting opportunity ever, my very first presentation was at this like international summit at Harvard University. I was like taking selfies with my badge. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm at Harvard. (laughs) No pressure, and no pressure I know. in that setting. I do this crazy, ridiculous, you know, performance, for lack of a better word, on UDL. And a number of people came up to me at the end and they said, do you do this in other districts? I'm like, why, yes, I do. No, no I don't. I have no idea. <laughs> But David Rose, from then on, he's like, this is so awesome. We have to present together. So he and I started presenting together. I was in the professional cadre at CAST, which is really how I got my foot in the consulting door. Mm-hmm. And he used to, when he would introduce us, he would say, I am David Rose. I'm the founder. I'm the chief academic officer. I do the brain research. And Katie brings the jazz. <laughs> jazz And hands. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you know what? I will take that. Like, yeah. that is a compliment. Mm-hmm. So... That is really how I I ended up in a place where I have this amazing opportunity to present about UDL and how it can really like embrace the variability of our students, how it provides so many flexible pathways for students to learn in ways that best meet their needs based on the context. Mm -hmm. And then also there's this added focus on having students build more autonomy for their learning. So I got to experience the power and the promise of UDL as a part of a research study where my students made absolutely incredible growth. I got to look at that growth as an administrator. I was in a district for six years as an assistant superintendent where in you know applying a lot of what I learned, mm-hmm. we were able to make absolutely incredible growth with many students. And so now I get to talk about that and support districts around the world in doing the same. That's exciting. Okay, before we go any further, because I'm about to jump to something else. If I don't know how close you are to your mic. I'm just getting a little of that like close talk to a mic. Okay, I pulled it back a little bit. Okay, cool. So I just have to share, listening to your journey. Okay, everybody who's listening to this podcast, Katie and I just finished a book together. So I was very excited when she would come on, when she said she would come on the podcast and talk. And so it's a book about universal design for learning and blended learning. And as I'm hearing you talk about your journey, Katie, I am having like a deja vu moment because my blended learning journey started when I was on maternity leave with my first child who is 13 years old and literally was thinking, okay, I am going to be home for 17 months with my daughter. It's so it's kind of a long maternity leave like you. I am, don't want to live on a single teacher's salary. Uh, and what am I going to do to make some extra income? I'll teach online college courses. And it was in that moment when my kind of interest was piqued, my blended learning journey began. So I think that's so funny that we've written an entire book together and I didn't even know that about you. <laughs> I mean, this is like the ultimate bumper sticker of a, when one door closes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> open up another one. And yeah. then also, you know, it's okay to be fresh. It's okay to put your ideas out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we talk about universal design for learning, like, so for the people who have like, who are listening now, they've heard, I'm sure they've heard UDL referred to or in passing, or maybe they have an intimate knowledge of what UDL is, but how do you define it when you're working with educators and you're not really sure what they might be thinking coming into a session on universal design for learning? I like to think of universal design for learning as more of a conceptual framework as opposed to something that people do. I think that we are in a world and in a field that wants like really quick solutions to long-term problems. As an example, um, you know, I am now over 40. I have some beautiful laugh lines all around my eyes and I would love to buy a lotion that would make them go away. <laughs> but, but I can't just reverse, you know, 40 years of smiling and laughing. And so I think that we just, again, have this society, which is like, how do I do this quickly? And when people learn about universal design and they think of it as like, it's something I do, it will often lead them to 
UDL guidelines, which are like, what are the evidence-based strategies that support learners? And on that list, you're going to see things like providing mastery-oriented feedback and ensuring that there's scaffold supports and making sure that there's opportunities for student reflection. And Mm -hmm. it's really easy to say, oh gosh, that's all it is. I'm already doing that. (laughs) Check, check, check. Yeah. Like nailed it, (laughs) nailing it. As opposed to saying, it's really about kind of core components of our belief system about teaching and learning. And what I love is as we were writing the book together, everything that you shared about blended learning really aligns to those core components. Mm -hmm. So I always talk about it as three core components. Um, Number one is embracing variability. Number two is a focus on firm goals, but through flexible means. And then number three is this goal of expert learning. I love that. So as we unpack those... Variability is essentially just this really unique mix of strengths and weaknesses and preferences and what I need to learn right now based on context. And in many ways, we have been delivered this like terrible bill of goods that (laughs) learners and their labels mean something for learning. So this concept of like, let's just make small groups of students and there are struggling learners and there are strong learners and these are our learners who are English learners and this is our group of students with disabilities and therefore I know what to do with them. And that's insane because even within a group of learners, there's going to be so much difference between like the strengths and the areas that they need support. And so variability is just the recognition that We all are so different from each other, but we're also different from ourselves day to day. Mm -hmm. And that I really should have an opportunity every single day to look at my options and say, what is the best way for me to meet this goal today? And so the example that I always give, which is really, really lame, is you could say that I'm a strong reader. Mm -hmm. Because using a simple view of reading, I can decode and I have good comprehension strategies. Right. But... I am not a good reader if I don't have my corrective lenses in. Mm-hmm. If I'm not wearing glasses, if I'm not wearing contacts, I literally cannot see. I couldn't make out a single word on the page. <laughs> and so I'm probably not a learner that you would say you're going to be in the group that's allowed to use the audiobook. But you don't know when I run out of contacts. Right. <laughs> and you don't know that I'm terrible about making sure that they're here for me when one runs out. So I, based on the context, might have to choose an audio. Right. And so, you know, what is necessary for some is good for all. So we really believe in variability and recognizing that some learners may need support, some may need additional challenge, but it's really up to us and learners to work together to figure out what are the best pathways. Um, The next is all kids can learn at high levels. This is about firm goals and flexible needs. No one in this universe has the privilege or the power, however you want to look at it, to lower expectations for kids. Mm -hmm. And there are so many people who have decided the kids can't do it, I'm going to make it easier, as opposed to they may not be able to be successful in this way, so how do I increase supports? How do I design it differently so that all students can work towards those standards? So it's looking at access points, it's looking at entry points, and it's making sure that we're really increasing that level of scaffolding because deficit-based thinking results in low levels of learning every damn time. Mm -hmm. I know. And the last piece is just expert learning, which is kids can embrace their own variability if we give them an opportunity to actually make choices. So often we use like, well, they can't make good choices, so I can't (laughs) allow them to have choices, but we've never taught them to make good choices. (laughs) So expert learning is how do we design learning in a way that allows learners to take risks and try new things and reflect on those things. And ultimately, of course, we can be there to pull small groups and provide feedback, but that really can't be instead of allowing students to learn about themselves, it needs to be in addition to. And so when you talk about blended learning, it's very much like we have to embrace that variability. We have to free ourselves up to work with students individually or small groups to actually reflect on like, what is it that you need to learn and what have you tried? And we cannot do that if we're putting on a damn performance for the whole class by oh, saying, know, watch the me. The room. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think one of the things that whenever, when I'm hearing you talk that I'm thinking that I'm always kind of articulating for teachers because I do get a lot of pushback like, oh, but kids don't make good choices. And oh, but I don't think they'll be they'll be able to handle that. And I'm kind of like, you know, 
we have to believe they can do it or they can't do it, right? Like if we believe they can do it, anything's possible. You're, we just may have to be really strategic, right? About what scaffolds and supports and, um, and choices we make available to them. And I think one of the things that you wrote about in the book that has just stayed with me, and I want you to talk about it because I think everybody needs to hear it, is you had this wonderful analogy for scaffolds because I'm always advocating like, hey, don't just put kids in skill level groups and leave them there. Like I work about that, what that does to a learner's confidence. And so, you know, consider mixed skill level groups. And I think there's this concern that like, oh, that's going to be really hard to, you know, provide the appropriate instruction and supports if they're all mixed in a mixed level group, even though those groups have been shown to be very, very effective. And you wrote about having scaffolds on hand and available to everybody. And you compared it to, I want to say like, uh, ordering like Grubhub or like food to be delivered. Do you remember <laughs> yeah. that analogy? Yeah. Okay, yeah. you got to share that. So one of the things that I say is what is necessary for some is good for all of us. And like if you owned, you know, a local store, for example, you want to make sure that everybody is shopping at your store. But when you think about variability, you can predict there are some people who might not have transportation to your store. Or what about all the people who don't live near your store? <laughs> and so, you know, what you do as obviously a proactive business person is you say, I want to make sure that there's an option for delivery. And that option was really designed for people who like could not get transportation safely or, you know, they didn't live locally. And I know that I myself am very guilty of taking advantage of such <laughs> scaffolds even when I have plenty of time in front of me and a vehicle and I live close. And so, you know, the idea of Grubhub is really, you know, we want to make sure that you can get food to your house if you're not able to go pick it up. I am able to pick it up and I Grubhub <laughs> like every single weekend. And that option probably wasn't originally made for me. You could argue that I am taking the easy route, but I'm meeting the goal because the goal is for that place to make sure that more people are able to get that food. And if our goal as educators are to make sure that these are the goals, like these, this is the knowledge that everyone needs to build and these are the skills, and we say, you know, here's an audio version or here's an opportunity to work with a group or, you know, here's a word bank, you know, we might be providing those because we know that we have students who will struggle. And then we get all frustrated when you have, you know, other students who are like, oh, cool, I'll take advantage of that. I'll do the group work. I'll take the revision. You're like, that wasn't meant for them. And what I want to say is, do you order food and get it delivered to your house? Because if so, you might be a tad and I mean this in the most loving way, hypocritical. Well, and your point too, I think that if I'm remembering it correctly was if we're going to cultivate expert learners, the expert learner knows what they need in that moment. And maybe in that moment, they need a scaffold that we wouldn't have, just like your contact lenses. We might not have a thought that they would need, but for whatever reason in that moment, they need it. And can we help them develop enough self-awareness to realize when they need a specific support and when they don't? Yep, exactly. And then sometimes we just have to recognize that, you know, sometimes I just have to use the scaffold or I'm going to go hungry. Right, right. You know, it's, it's like we talk about it like the alternative is that I'm going to commit to do the work. And I think that we have to realize that sometimes our plates are just too full. We're overwhelmed. And providing the scaffold is really the only pathway at that point in time that you're going to get the work done. And if we really embrace variability, I think that we can open ourselves up much more to realizing just the incredible balancing act that being an expert student is mm -hmm. and provide some grace and some use of tools when necessary. And certainly if it feels as though some students are continuing to use the scaffold and we're like, does this person even know how to drive to go pick up food? That's when having that time for one-on-one -on -one is really right. important to say, you know, do you, do you know how to drive anymore? You know, you've been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's those conversations. So that's kind of, you've defined UDL. When you're kind of articulating the why, you know, the value or purpose when you're working with teachers, when you're working with leadership teams, like what is that kind of succinct why that you provide them to try to help them understand why this is so valuable and what they're kind of working toward? 
Right now, we are not meeting the needs of a very wide variety of students. And I think that that is really difficult. So yes, change is really hard. And I know that people are incredibly overwhelmed. And it seems like, oh my gosh, like why are we going to do this different thing? And the main reason is, is what we are currently doing doesn't work well. There are, you know, our national rates here in the United States, we're looking at about 30% of kids who are proficient with grade level learning. That means, you know, six out of 10 are not meeting the, you know, grade level expectations. Mm -hmm. And I love the work in the opportunity myth, which is a large scale study that says, you know, many times the reasons that students aren't able to be really successful with grade level learning is that they're never really given an opportunity to grapple with grade level learning. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it's anyone's intent. Um, But I also know that Beverly Daniel Tatum says the work is not about intent. The work is about impact and our impact on students, especially those students who have been historically marginalized or minoritized, is that we have not made growth that matches our intent. We want all students to learn, but not all students are learning. And certainly there are things that are out of our control, but I believe there's a heck of a lot more that is. And if we designed more inclusive, more equitable tier one instruction, if we had better professional learning and systems that really value professional learning and more flexible curriculum and, you know, ensure that we have the curriculum and the scheduling that we need, more students would be successful. And so we we have to recognize why are we doing this? Because we really want all students to learn at high levels. And currently we're working way too hard to not have better results. So we need a framework that has an evidence base that embraces variability, that provides all students with opportunities to learn at grade level and also helps to build some of these future-ready skills that we're always talking about are crazy critical because these kids are competing with robots. Yeah, no, for sure. That's such great points. And it it is so hard to see teachers working as hard as they are and not feeling like they're, you know, just not feeling that success. Like, okay, this is working. What I'm doing is working, which is, it has to be just so frustrating. So in all of your interactions with educators and leaders around UDL, what, what would you say are some of those kind of misconceptions around universal design for learning? I think the biggest one is probably that UDL is differentiated instruction. Mm. And I believe both are incredibly valuable. And as a practitioner, I think that we need to build efficacy in both areas, but they are incredibly different. So universal design for learning is essentially how do we design learning first best instruction so that all students will have equitable opportunities to access grade level learning. And so when we're designing, we're designing really thinking about what are potential barriers that we can predict and eliminate before we get to that point where we have students struggling. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about how we design learning, we say, like, my goal is to make sure that all students can do this. And, you know, one potential reason why some students may struggle is you know, fill in the blank. And, you know, so the example about my being a strong reader, um, you know, if you are working on students being able to make sense of a primary source document, that is not a foundational reading standard where you're actually looking to measure and teach how to decode and how to comprehend. So if you have a high school student who is not yet functionally literate, there really is a choice. You can either make that text really accessible or you can exclude the student from having access to grade level text. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about the grade level text, you know, if this is important enough and I can predict that I have some students who cannot decode at that level and my goal is actually not decoding, it's comprehension, Mm -hmm. then I want to make sure that there's an option to work on it with a partner, which would be like a socio-cultural scaffold, or to listen to the audio, which would be a more linguistic scaffold, or to work with me in a small group where I can chunk the text and summarize it, which would be more of a conceptual scaffold. But I want to offer those options to all learners to say, ultimately, I need you to make sense of this text. And so really think about like what is the best way for you to build this background knowledge. That would be universal design for learning. I love that. That being said, I provide those options and those choices, but let's say that I say, okay, I want to do a formative assessment right now, and I want you to answer, like, what is the main idea of the section that you were focused on? And I ask students to do a formative assessment, and I have five students who just bomb it. 
Like <laughs> the learning isn't there yet. Mm-hmm. What I want to do now is create a flexible group, which includes those five students to check in with them to say, okay, this was the goal. You had all of these options. I, I'm not... I'm not seeing even partial proficiency here. Mm -hmm. So I need time to work with you. That is differentiated instruction. Mm -hmm. And Carol Tomlinson, the mother of Mm -hmm. differentiated instruction, always says flexible grouping and regrouping. And her poor framework has been bastardized, excuse my language, because people will do like, oh, I'm doing differentiated instruction. This is my struggling group. This is my advanced group. And I'm like, no, Carol Tomlinson has always said we need to be responsive to student evidence. You can't just put kids in groups and leave them there indefinitely. So a great practitioner will universally design instruction, allow students the flexibility and the autonomy to think about the goal, to think about their own variability, and to practice expert learning. But when formative assessment data suggests that students may need more support, I do need to put students in groups to differentiate instruction. And so they're both about providing you know, different options and choices, and they work together in a multi-tiered system. But if I differentiate instruction from the beginning, if I say, oh, these kids are never going to be able to do it, I'm going to give them something easier. These students are going to need a graphic organizer. I've actually like taken away their ability to know how to support themselves as learners. And in many ways, that could prevent some students from accessing instruction at grade level. Yeah, no, I love how concrete your examples are. And I appreciate the the kind of compare contrast of the two, because I do think that that I hear that as well, some interchangeable language that um, it's good just to kind of have some clarity about the difference, but also how they complement each other, which I think is really powerful. So Obviously, we're in this very unusual moment in education, and you work with educators like I do every single day. Um, What are the imbalances that you see teachers and maybe even the leaders that come into those sessions struggling with? Like, what are... What are those imbalances? And then maybe on the flip side, what's your messaging been right now about the ways in which maybe UDL can play a role in correcting or helping to strive for more balance in our current situation? So I think that in many ways, the barriers that we're dealing with are all incredibly similar. Um, Mindset is one of them. When I work with large (laughs) groups of educators, I will hear, but what about educators who really don't believe in the value of inclusion or, you know, say that, you know, our lives are not this flexible. Like sometimes you just have to kind of buck up and do some things. Right. So I think that mindset is definitely one that is challenging. Um, I think another is time. Certainly we are crunched for time. It is a finite resource. We're not getting any more of it, which means that if you're going to make time to really proactively design, universally design blended learning, you have to essentially cut out something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, I won't spend so much time doing this anymore because now I'm going to be doing this. And, you know, I think that a- another really huge, huge thing is is sometimes thinking about more systemic barriers because I always think about universal design as being beliefs and skills and systems. And so the belief part is all students can learn at high levels. I might not have all of the skills that I need to help students learn at high levels, but I believe that all students are, are can work at high levels and I value inclusion. The next is, well, how do I do that? How do I design something that's flexible enough to meet the needs of a really wide variety of students in a class so they can all be challenged and supported? And so with that skill set comes, you know, the time for professional learning, the time Mm -hmm. for common planning, the time to work with instructional coaches, the time for lesson design. But then you have this systemic barrier. And I, for one, am absolutely you know, I feel very strong about my belief system that all kids can learn. I believe that I have a very strong foundational skill set to universally design blended learning, to be really responsive to student feedback, to collaborate with colleagues to make sure that I'm eliminating barriers behaviorally and, you know, socially and emotionally. That being said, am I provided with tech tools as a teacher? Right. Do I have a curriculum that I'm allowed to use flexibly as opposed to gag with fidelity and quote marks? Um, <laughs> do I have a schedule that allows for supplemental support? If you pull out all students who are struggling in reading during my English class, because that's the only time to provide them with you know, a, a Wilson reading or a Gorton Gillingham, like that affects my ability to teach all students. Right. 
And so, you know, I think that we have to look at this in a couple of different ways. We have to look at that sometimes there's barriers about belief systems. Sometimes there's barriers with that skill set. There's just no time to build that skill set. And sometimes we have to look at strategic planning and say, what does our district need in the long term so that we can support educators to meet the needs of all learners. And so, you know, my answer about how to address all those barriers is when people say, you know, what about colleagues who don't really believe in that flexibility? Model it. That's mm-hmm. always my answer. I have never worked with a group of educators who didn't appreciate having the option to take breaks, to see examples, to follow up with a one-on-one with me. Okay, if you model how to do this really well and say, what was that like for you? How is that different from a typical faculty meeting? You will get people to say, oh, that was really great. You know, and then you can start highlighting, you know, that example, maybe I designed for a small subset, but I'm sure many of you used that. Um, as far as the skill set, I think that we have incredible opportunities to provide professional learning um, in areas that are not the best time well spent. So I think that faculty meetings are an incredible opportunity to focus on more professional learning mm-hmm. where we can begin to realize where do we have time and is this really increasing the outcomes of our educators and our students? And how can we take some of the time that we have and invest it in a way that helps teachers to build a skill set to meet the needs of all learners? And my answer to strategic planning is stop creating one-year improvement plans for the love (laughs) of all that is good. Anything that is worth changing in our district will take years to change. And when I work with districts long-term, I'll usually say, like, can I see, you know, your last three or four years of district improvement plans? (laughs) And it's sometimes like I'm reading four different plans from four different districts. I'm like... Okay, so three years ago, we did a lot of trauma-informed, and now we're not? Like, why why is there no mention of that again? Clearly, we don't become experts in trauma-informed teaching in one year. And so I think that we really need more long-term theories of action, needs assessments, so that our school improvement plans are not tied to the preferences or the needs or the whims of whoever happens to be in charge at one time. Um, I think that a district improvement plan really needs to be created with multiple stakeholders so it can outlast a single the, person. Yep. Yeah, the single person and the oh, and a totally. lot of the turnaround we see. Oh my gosh. You and then you know, I see so many teachers who almost feel like that sense of whiplash. Like, okay, we did a deep dive into this. Oh wait, now we're changing course and we're focusing on this. And they're kind of they never get that reward of now I've been really digging into trauma-informed teaching for four or five years. I feel like I have a high level of confidence and self-efficacy and mastery of this. And you know, that's the reward of learning something is to get it to get to that point. And if we don't create opportunities for teachers to get to those points with some of these really important topics and teaching techniques and all of this, the frameworks, then we kind of rob them of that feeling of accomplishment and success. And like, hey, that was really worth my time and energy. And and I run into the same thing with blended learning. It's like, oh, we're going to invest heavily into it in this year. And then boom, the next year, (laughs) there's no conversation about it. And I'm like, this is a change in mindset, skill set, tool set. Like this is not going to happen overnight. Just like you said. And how many districts have you worked with where I'm like, okay, so, you know, before we talk about kind of multi-tiered systems, like what is your work with PBIS? Oh yeah, we did that three years ago. (laughs) Okay. But like, what about the people that you've hired in the past three years? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, we have our core values on a poster. Okay. That's great. Um, But but, (laughs) like, this is, you realize this is something that is an ongoing practice. Like you can't just do, you know, be trauma informed for one point in time. Is it's and that's why I like universal design for learning as a framework mm-hmm. because what you'll realize is all of these different dare I say, initiatives, mm-hmm. um, you know, being culturally sustaining, focusing on blended learning, like these are all really kind of specific, you know, um frameworks or initiatives that we're trying to put in place, but we're doing it because we're trying to remove a barrier that's preventing all kids from learning. And I think that when districts adopt this framework of universal design, they say, okay, we want all kids to learn. Great. 
we want all kids to learn at high levels. Fantastic. Okay. <laughs> and we want all students to make choices. What prevents all students from working at high levels? And then you start saying, well, the instruction is really one size fits all. Mm-hmm. So at the district level, the way to eliminate that barrier is actually to bring in blended learning. Right. So blended learning becomes a part of the strategy to universally design the district. Some students face barriers because they don't have, you know, really meaningful connections with culture. Mm-hmm. So we bring in a focus on culturally sustaining pedagogy because we're trying to universally design our system. And when we don't have a framework, a common framework, like a multi-tiered system or universal design to bring everything together, it feels really disconnected as opposed to adding like another ingredient to the chili, right? Because blended learning will be improved by knowing what trauma-informed teaching is, will be improved by learning new tech tools, will be improved by being culturally sustaining. They're not separate, but again, we create school improvement plans like they are, as opposed to saying, now we're going to increase our capacity in blended learning by focusing on how to make those options more culturally sustaining. And that is like my wish for this work, is that people just realize we cannot jump from year to year to year and expect to deconstruct a system that it took us centuries to build. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you're pointing out and one of the reasons we decided to write a book together is these these things, they're, they're often introduced in their own little silos, these initiatives, these ideas, these frameworks. And then there's no, there's no like crosswalk. There's no conversation about that complementary piece. And so I've been, I cannot tell you how many blended learning workshops and trainings I've done where people are like, oh, this is like so much like universal design for learning. Like so much of what you're saying reminds me of UDL. And I'm like, they're beautifully matched. Like together they, you know, blended learning can help you do so many of the things that are really at the heart of UDL. So we clearly wrote that the the book that we wrote for this reason. What is your hope for this book and how it might support teachers as they're really increasingly faced with kind of a flexible learning landscape. Like I don't think school is ever going to be exactly like it was before. I think they're going to need these skill sets that transcend online, offline, the combination of two. So what do you hope the the outcome will be for folks who read it? You know, I, I think one of the words that we used a lot is, yes, this requires a commitment of a career. This is something that is ongoing. Like I will always need to recognize what are barriers that prevent kids from learning. I will always need to provide different options and choices using technology, but also recognizing that not all students really thrive in that technology environment. Mm -hmm. And there needs to be options that are like non-technology related that will lead to that same goal. And so I think that what we can do together is we can say like, yes, this work is going to require an ongoing commitment, but that we offer hope that (laughs) there are frameworks that exist. There are templates that exist. There are teachers who have come before who have seen these connections. And these are some steps that you can take on your journey. And I think another thing that we do really well is is we tell a lot of stories and provide a lot of analogies because sometimes people look at multi-tiered systems and universal design for learning and blended learning as just like theory. (laughs) So it's, no, 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 no. These are all like really practical frameworks that will require you to shift your mindset and will require you to continue to build a skill set yep. and and will always require that just because technology will evolve, our students will evolve, our schools will evolve. And we're going to have to, every time we make a change, ask ourselves, what barriers does this change create and how do we eliminate them? Yes. And that's why I'm so confident that this concept of how do we design for everybody is never going to be replaced. It might evolve on its own, but having a framework that will truly drive your career until you retire, recognizing that, yes, you might need to change your strategies, but you don't have to change your belief system. That gives me so much hope that we can find a way to connect these initiatives in a way that makes a lot of sense. And what I fear most right now is that people feel buried by so many different things because they experience this disconnect. And I think that we begin to make 
connections for people to say, there is a method to this madness. Certainly, we cannot suddenly eliminate, you know, the opportunity gap in a year or two years. Right. But we can take steps over time that will make a really big difference. So at the beginning of this podcast, I talk about, I want a lotion that will make my skin look better, like now. And that's probably not going to happen. But what I can do is I can wear sunscreen. I can drink a lot more water. You know, I can, you know, use lotions that over time might make my skin look healthier. And like, that is not the answer that I want because I really do want just my face to look 20 again. (laughs) But like, that's what's going to happen. And so we're going to share with you what are the strategies? Like if you drink water every day, if you stay out of the sun and wear hats, over time, you're going to see these amazing improvements in your skin because there is an evidence base that makes good sense. But it's not like someone's going to go, oh, great, this is a new initiative. Now we have to drink water too. It's like, no, we have to do all of these things. (laughs) Yeah, and I love your point. Like learner variability isn't going anywhere. I feel like every year I'm in education, actually like the spectrum of need that I see in the classrooms where I coach, it just gets wider and wider. And our understanding of just how unique and different learners are, it's just, that's not going away technology sure isn't going away like the it's in it's literally infiltrating every single aspect of our lives it has to be a part of education and so i really do think you know if you're going to invest your time and energy at least teachers can be positive like okay long term this will be helpful like you said length of my career i will find value here so i think that's a, a good point to make and i will say everybody katie really challenged me as a writer with all of her storytelling i was like oh my goodness i really need to kick it into high gear with my own analogies <laughs> just to keep pace with her so um she definitely delivers on the very entertaining stories so as challenging as this moment is for everybody in and connected to education, I know we both see this as a potential catalyst for positive change. So what is one thing, one maybe piece of advice you would give to educators who are struggling with balance in their lives right now, their professional lives? My best advice is choose one day a week where you promise yourself you're never going to do any work. I have lived by work-free Saturdays for... (laughs) years. And it makes a big difference. So I think one thing that's happening right now is that educators are working every waking minute. And as a result of that, there is no space to find balance. So that Mm -hmm. is my very fast advice. But I think long-term, one of the things that I hear, which concerns me is that people are thinking that like this whole last year has been building capacity for remote learning and then we're going to go back and what a waste. (laughs) And I want to think of it as there's not like remote learning and then in-person learning. It's when we universally design instruction and when we use blended learning, we want to make sure that there are options and choices that will work regardless of the learning landscape. And I know that we say that quite a bit. But like, you know, for instance, I live right outside of Boston. Right now we're experiencing a pretty decent storm. And so tomorrow they did not call a snow day. They called a completely remote day. And I don't think that that's ever going away. Mm -hmm. And so I think that as we realize that there are some students who have made incredible growth because learning was remote. I don't see why that wouldn't be an option moving forward to some learners. And so... When you're thinking about your skill set, don't think of it as this is a skill set that I use in remote learning. Think of it as these are options that I can provide, which will free me up in my classroom to provide really targeted support to individual learners, to small groups of students. I think this concept of pre-recording lectures and having students watch them, that still works when we're in classrooms together. When we're talking about there's options to use some of these tools to share your work, like your Google Classrooms and your Mm -hmm. Flipgrid. That doesn't go away. And so I want people to know that the time that you spent to do probably the most incredible transition in educational history to be able to serve learners online, all of those skills are equally valuable when you're universally designing blended learning. They don't go away. You don't have to put them on the shelf. Is It's just really great practices mm-hmm. to think about how you can free yourself up to do the work that is most important. 
Yay. Which is connecting with learners, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's it. We free ourselves from the feeling like we're trapped at the front of the room, whether it's explaining things and transferring information or providing instruction or, or directions or orchestrating the parts of the lesson. And we just get to be free to connect with learners and support learners. And that that to me is so exciting. And I agree. I think so much of the, the skills and the strategies teachers are cultivating, even though it's been so stressful, it's been so much time and energy, they are are going to be really fluid and can create some really exciting change once we do spend time back in actual physical spaces with students. So I always end the show by giving my guests the last words. So Katie, what mm-hmm. do you do to strive for and create balance in your own life besides no work Saturday? Oh, that's a very good question. I am a long distance runner. And I love running. Some people think of running as like, no, I can't say I love running every day. Like it was, (laughs) you know, on Saturday, it was like negative four degrees and I ran 10 miles. Like that wasn't a great day in my running life. But I find that when I can get out, regardless of the weather and listen to a really trashy murder mystery. I want to be clear (laughs) that my running time in no way, shape, or form aligns to any professional growth. So I go out, you know, at least four times a week, you know, for an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, and I will listen to the worst, most amazing murder mysteries. And I can say that's the only time, it's truly the only time in my day where I don't think about anything. My My brain is like a squirrel or a hamster wheel where like I'm always like, hey, how can I grow? How can I connect? How can I do this? I go to bed at night creating to-do lists for the next day. Mm -hmm. And I can honestly say that I am at this point where like when I go out, I am just listening to the beautiful audiobook sounds, (laughs) usually of Imogen Church. She's my favorite. She is an Irish reader. And she does tons of different voices. I am telling you, you have to you have to look her up. But I take that time, and that is me time. I actually schedule it. So um, I schedule blocks of time in my schedule at least three times a week for at least a two-hour block for running. And that has made an incredible amount of difference in my sanity and my ability to be an educator and a mom. Because again, in addition to Saturdays, which are very family-oriented, that's time that's just for me. This is hilarious. I listen to true crime podcasts when I'm on my rower for the exact same reason because I get in my own head and it is just my chance to focus on something so outside of my life. And oh yeah, it's such an escape. So I was a college rower. (gasps) Get out. Nope. University of New Hampshire. Oh man. I love my rower in the pandemic. And and I do. I'm like a, a long distance walker. Unfortunately, after years of cross country and track, my knees do not love me anymore. Uh-huh. But I, I, it is such an escape to just put on something that I don't have to think about really hard. It doesn't relate to my my work life. And it's just this mental escape. And it is sometimes I feel like the only time I can get out of my head completely. No, it's it's so true for me as well. And I think everybody has their hobbies, you know, Netflix or right. knitting or, you know, whatever it happens to be. And go for it, schedule it. And that's, I think, really important. I actually will schedule it. Like I'll look at my calendar like a couple weeks in advance and it's like, ooh, that's starting to fill up. I need to block that time for myself <laughs> and then just Trashy get out Trashy murder there. mystery time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very important. So I get through probably, I mean, at least a trashy murder mystery every two weeks. So if any of your listeners have any suggestions for really trashy murder mysteries, <laughs> they need to send me those recommendations. I will make sure Katie's Twitter handle and information are in the show, <laughs> show notes so you guys can send her some great recommendations. Um, tell the listeners where they can find you if they're curious about picking up a book to start with? Which one would you recommend? So um, you can find me at novaceducation.com. It's N-O-V-A-K. So novaceducation.com. And there's a list to the books that I've written and there's book guides and I'm on pretty much all all social media as well. And um, I like to say that there's lots of options and choices. I've been really lucky to write in a lot of different spaces. So depending on your own variability, there are <laughs> lots of different options. So, you know, if you are in higher ed, I co-wrote a book that's very similar to a textbook on international implementation of higher education. Um, 
or UDL in higher education. So that would be if you are a higher ed person. Um, if you are an administrator, I've written Universal Design Leadership, which is how do we create multi-tiered systems really focused on eliminating barriers at all different levels of, of our practices. And then there's a number of fabulous ones on implementation. So I wrote Innovate Inside the Box with George Koros, who is my long lost brother, <laughs> Equity by Design with Mirko Chardin. Um, there's, there's something for everyone. So luckily I do like to write not as much as my murder mysteries, but I mean, they're both, they're both way up there. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Katie. I'm thrilled you could be on. It was, it was so good to talk to you as always. Normally, I end the podcast with teacher tips, but today I'm going to do something a little different. So I've tried to put into practice a recommendation that I've heard repeatedly on this podcast from several guests about creating space in the morning to kind of carve out time for your own routine, whether that is kind of meditating or whether it is journaling or just having kind of a quiet cup of tea on your own or coffee. And I've been trying to use that time to read and just read for myself some interest or need that I have. And the book that I'm reading right now is called Onward by Elena Aguilar. And it's all about resilience, but it's resilience specific to education and being an educator. And right now, I know so many teachers are feeling depleted and exhausted and overwhelmed and a little burnt out. And so I cannot recommend this book highly enough. She starts with this quote that I love, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And she makes the point that we can't control all of the stimulus that we face every day, but we can control our response. And in the book, she shares these habits that she believes through her research and her experience, which is vast in education, that can help educators build and develop resilience. And so I'm using one of the exercises from her Onward workbook, which is like a companion to her book with my college students. And it's all about identifying core values. And so I'm going to challenge them in our class this week to identify what are those core values and then reflect on how those core values are showing up in their actions, their decisions, specifically in their work in schools, because all of my students are teacher candidates. So I love this idea of really practicing these habits and carving out time each day to engage in these exercises so that we feel like we really can kind of fill our cup and develop our resilience to meet the demands of the moment and of this really beautiful but challenging career path that we have all chosen. So I cannot recommend enough Onward by Elena Aguilar. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's scope to include an engaging supplemental digital inquiry solution for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more info or follow the link in the show notes. <laughs>